Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sebastian Folks on his latest novel, Snow Country. Sebastian Folks' books include Paris Echo, Where the Heart Used to Be, Human Traces, On Green Dolphin Street, Engleby, Birdsong, and the number one bestseller, A Week in December. And today we're going to be talking about Sebastian's latest book, which is Snow Country. Sebastian, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe Snow Country. I would describe it as a novel which hopes to make you think about things uh, some things which are quite philosophical, quite interesting, quite big questions about what kind of creatures human beings are, but which at the same time is a very tightly focused story about the lives of three or four people. And at its heart, I would say it's really quite a simple love story. And it's also a well, the second part of a proposed trilogy, um, your previous book, Human Traces, which is also set in a key location of this novel. As you say at the beginning of this novel, both books can easily be read separately. This is a standalone story, but some of the protagonists of that first novel do hang rather heavily over the characters in this novel. So tell us how the two are connected. Well, the first thing to say is that it's a very ambitious and rather silly thing to say you're going to write a trilogy. I mean, I might be run over by a tram tomorrow. I might be uh, get COVID. I seem to have escaped it so far, but who knows? And there's 15 years have passed since um, Human Traces came out. And as one of the reviewers said, it's quite surprising to see somebody return after such a long time. But I think that I knew when I had finished Human Traces, even though it's a very long book, that there were still ideas in it that would bear looking at again. And what I was saying before, really, the very strange nature of the human creature. It's not something that 
any number of books or any number of writers, whether they're coming at it from a scientific or a medical or a philosophical point of view, are ever really going to get to the end of. So I knew I knew I would want to come back at some point. The relationship of the two books, in my view, it's probably better to read Snow Country first because it's a slightly shorter and slightly easier book in some ways to approach. And then if you like it, which I hope people will, they can then say, right, now we'll, we'll see the people who are referred to and uh, the, who have just small walk-on parts in Snow Country. Let's go back and, and find out what they were like as young people. That's the sort of fun thing you can do in fiction, which for obvious reasons you can't do in real life. I mean, I I quite often, when I meet someone in their 40s or 50s or 60s, imagine what they were like as children. And it would be really fun to meet them when they were either 12 or 19 or 21. And in fiction, you can do that. So I think that's one connection. Uh, and the connections between the books are, are, are really thematic. They're, about, they're going to be about the same ideas. But there are one or two characters who recur. But if you've been, my rule of thumb is that I don't want to be writing sequels because otherwise people who haven't read the first one say, well, I'm not going to read bother with this one. This is emphatically not a sequel. And if you've been a big character in one, you can only have a walk-on in another one. Well, the big ideas that you cover in this book... Indeed, you've written about similar ideas elsewhere. I was going to say it didn't have to be in the same setting. You could have explored those ideas in another setting. But you have chosen to to set this in the same setting. So I wanted to talk about Austria fundamentally. What is it about Austria and this particular setting that interests you? I think I was drawn to it in the first place for two reasons. One, very simply, that uh, a friend of mine, his family, his mother's family is Austrian, and I went to stay with him once in her old summer house by a lake in the southern southern part of Austria called Carinthia in the southeast near the border with Slovenia. And I was staying in a hotel across the way because the little summer house on the lake was only had one bedroom. And the hotel I was staying in, was a very nice building built around a courtyard with a fountain and then a sort of gallery upstairs. And it just rather set my mind racing. And I find this quite often with books that, you know, you think you're going to plan them all in a very orderly way and you're going to work out what they're going to be about first and then you'll work out the kind of characters you need and finally, you know, you'll, the action is to, to make all that come together. But it, in reality, it, it's much less orderly than that. You see a building or a courtyard or a room, a light behind a window, and you think, oh, yeah, now that's interesting. Now I wonder what happened there. And, and suddenly your mind starts working in a way that makes things come alive for you. So it was partly that. And then, of course, I mean, I was thinking this is about 23 years ago now, I suppose. I was also thinking then about about writing a book about the early days of psychiatry and of psychoanalysis and what we had learned, if anything, since then. And, of course, Vienna in the 1890s and then the first two decades of the 20th century was really the, the hub of a lot of this thought and exploration. So for those two reasons, I was drawn to Austria. And then this book, Snow Country, is set. It starts in 1910, um, before the First World War, and it ends in 1934, when a civil war breaks out in Austria. And all this is quite, it's pretty interesting, really. Uh, It's the old world of 1910. And in 1934, Hitler's just been elected in Germany. So it's the beginning of a completely new age. And, uh, you know, Austrian history shows this in, in pretty uh, graphic, easy to follow and interesting ways. And so 
it would seem that this hotel you stayed in at that time becomes eventually the Schloss Seabrook, which is the uh, the central sanatorium in this story. It sounds very much like it. This is the the sanatorium that's set up by Thomas and Jack, the the characters from Human Traces, the the, the previous novel, and we now find it, you know, much later in the you know in the early twentieth century. So tell us about this Schloss, what it is, what's going on there. It's a sanatorium and it's for people with nervous ailments, as it was called in those days, neurasthenia, uh, but also people with more serious mental illness. And in Britain and France and Italy, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, the medical profession and the government decided they needed to get to grips with the whole idea of mental illness, madness or lunacy, as it was known in this country then. And they set up this great asylum system in which people were invited to bring in uh, members of their family, friends, neighbours who were suffering. And they were put into these huge Victorian asylums. Every county had one or two. Um, But the trouble was that although this was an enterprise which started off with a great philanthropic and hopeful intent, once they got all these hundreds and thousands of people there, uh, they realised they didn't really know what the matter was with any of them, um, still less how to cure it. And... They, over the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, these places became sort of dumping grounds, really, uh, where people that society found difficult to deal with would be um, deposited. And some of these people were suffering from uh, senile dementia or alcohol dependency. Um, some were suffering from what we would now call psychosis or schizophrenia. Uh, some were simply depressed um, some were uh, troublesome in other ways or had some had organic disease like epilepsy and some were just uh, were blind or deaf or just difficult to deal with. And so in Human Traces, two very young, very idealistic men, uh, one French called Jacques and one English called Thomas, decide that this is no good at all and they want to really get to the bottom of what is this problem with humanity? Why, why are we af- afflicted by so many of these odd illnesses and diseases and malfunctions which other creatures don't seem to have? And so this is a marvellous pioneering adventure, romantic adventure, quixotic adventure, really, that they set up and each trains rigorously, one in, in England, one in Paris. Uh, and then they put their thoughts together and they rent, they take a lease on this big building near a lake in Austria. And the idea is that they'll take lots of rich people who are suffering from, you know, quite mild nervous exhaustion and things like that. And with the fees that they charge them, they will do a great deal of research into treating the causes of the more seriously ill patients who tend to be from poorer families. So it really is a sort of huge philanthropic um, venture that's that's the background of the Schloss Seblick. Anton Heideck, who is one of our, our two main protagonists in this story, tell us something about who he is. So uh, Snow Country starts, as I, I think I said, in 1910, and Anton is a young man who has come to Vienna to go to the university. And he comes from a very bourgeois family. The family business is making sausages, and they come from a, um, a sort of provincial town in Styria, a part of Austria. And when he arrives in Vienna, Anton is rather shocked by the decadent life he finds there, Um, notably the number of prostitutes who line the streets 
And in those days, um, the police would draw or paint a line along the middle of the pavement and the girls had to stand on the building side of it so that um, respectable passers-by could walk in peace without being molested. But this coincides, of course, with a lot of very serious psychological speculation about the right way to live, about sex, character, gender, and so on, which is being published by many writers in Vienna are publishing at this time. And of course, there is a very lively artistic, musical, cultural scene going on. Anton isn't particularly interested in any of that. Uh, and he decides to make himself into a reporter. He he doesn't want to be a, a great writer or musician, but he thinks that he could find a niche for himself reporting on the deeds of others. And the other thing he really wants to do is find a way of fitting in, finding a way of making himself feel valuable as a male um, in his relations with women. And like most young men, he's pretty hopeless at this. He's clumsy and inept and inexperienced, and he uh, it's quite hard for him to find his way forward. But, you know, he he's... Uh, He's a persevering kind of fellow. And then eventually he meets Delphine, who is French and older than him and considerably more experienced. Yes, he has to support himself as a student by private tutoring. His family won't pay for him because they want him to do law or medicine. And he says, no, he wants to do philosophy. They say, well, fine, but you have to support yourself, um, which is a very a very common middle class attitude, I think, in, the, in every country, in every generation. And one of his tutoring jobs is in a very smart part of Vienna. And he's tutoring a young boy who is extremely dull and and backward pupil. But there's a governess working in this enormous apartment called Delphine, who's an older, as you say, older woman in her. He thinks in her early 30s, but she's even a little older than that, actually. And he falls for her very hard and very heavily. And she eventually falls for him, too, though she tries to warn him that um, her past is not perhaps you know, is not unblemished. But he's so um, carried away by the, the physical aspect of things that he, he barely listens to her when she tries to explain. What happens to them is, is what happens to people, characters a lot in my books, which is that they're very focused on their own passions and their own lives and their own feelings. And the big movements of history go on all around them and have, a, have an effect on them that they are not immediately aware of. And in, the, in August 1914, Anton finds himself in Paris reporting on a story, a very scandalous uh, real-life story of how the Minister of Finance's wife, uh, so like the Chancellor of the Exchequer's wife, Mrs. Rishi Sunak, as it were, went into the office of the editor of the Figaro and shot him dead through the heart. And this was all to do with uh, sexual relations and adultery and so on and so forth, and the possibility of the emergence of scandalous letters. But what it means is that the whole of Paris was thinking about sex and violence rather than about the war, which was about to plunge the whole of Europe into darkness a week later. Anton is stuck in Paris when war breaks out, and Delphine, who is French, is stuck in Vienna. And as you can imagine, I don't want to give away the plot, but this causes complications for them. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sebastian Folks, and we're talking about his latest novel, Snow Country. And as you said, Sebastian, the, the First World War breaks out, the Great War, it's 1914, and Anton goes away and fights. And although the book doesn't focus too much on his experiences, clearly this massively um, shape who he becomes. Um, the book leaps forward at this point to 1927 and we meet Lena, our other main protagonist. But before we talk about her, his experiences in the war, he fights in a a place called Galicia. And when I first came across this in the book, I immediately thought, what? There wasn't any fighting in Spain. And so I was was delighted to discover a whole area of Europe that I'd actually never heard of before. And Anton is fighting for the the former Austro-Hungarian Empire against the Russians, Russians being in the the war before the revolution. Tell us something about that conflict in that area, because it's, it's something that I'm not familiar with at all. Well, it was there was something called the Brusilov Offensive, which was reckoned to have been the most bloodthirsty and brutal episode of the whole of the First World War, which cost something like a million deaths. But obviously, in this country, we don't know that much about it compared to the Western Front, which is where our soldiers were fighting. And I don't go into very much detail about the war. I feel that I 
been there, I've done that. You know, there is birdsong after all. But the importance of the war in, in snow country really is in the fallout from it. And again, to go back to what we were talking about before, the way that these events have a sort of a way of sneaking through unseen, like sort of rising damp into people's lives. And it's only when the plaster starts bubbling and cracking some years later that you need to look at at what has been going on underneath. The reader may well feel when they meet Anton in the second part of the book that something has changed in him and maybe he is suffering from some form of post-traumatic stress. But I leave that to him to explain through his conversations with other people and for the reader to to find out rather than I I don't really lay it on very myself. So let's talk about Lena then, who, as I said, is, is, is the sort of second main protagonist in the story. When we first meet her, tell us about her. Lena is uh, considerably younger. Um, we meet her as a little girl when war breaks out. She's about eight, if I remember rightly. And she lives in uh, a small town overlooking a river wharf with her mother in, in two rooms. And her mother is an alcoholic and unable to hold down a job and uh, makes ends meet by sleeping with men from the the river trade or from the town. And the idea for Lena really came to me from a book I read about nursing, in which uh, the author Christy Watson talked about various patients she had nursed, including a woman who was only happy when she was pregnant, and who was also an alcoholic. And what interested me about that was what might it be like to be the child of that woman? So that's where Lena came from. And hers is a very different background from Anton. She's very poor and has little chance in life, though through a charitable organisation, she does get to go to school. She doesn't get on at all well at school. It just doesn't really take with her. And she leaves young and goes to work in a laundry of the hospital and subsequently gets a job in a shop and eventually moves to Vienna, where she's also working in a shop. And Anton's job, his project, if you like, is to find, to find a, a way of living that makes him feel not superfluous, that makes him feel useful. Whereas Lena's project is really to survive. And she is a, a girl with not much going for her, but she does have a sense of entitlement. And she thinks that she's as good as anyone else and that she has a right to live and love, and to make money, and to have have a life, and that is uh, that is what she sets out to do. And she's she develops from a frightened little girl into a young woman of quite considerable resources. I think it's fair to say, and I hope that the reader will come to don't have to like her, you don't have to love her, but I think she's sort of she's worthy of some degree of respect, despite the difficult things which happen to her. No, I, I agree. And I think she's a, a very powerful character. And indeed, her mother, who, you know, we see generally through, you know, to begin with, through Lena's eyes, quite critically. But then later on, much later in the book, there's another perspective given on her mother from a neighbour who, who has been a long term lover of hers and presents her in a an almost heroic light in that she is living a small life, a humble life, but a life fundamentally of of pleasure seeking, which it seems in its own way, a slightly revolutionary way for her to be living at that time. Well, I think that you have to say that she's true to herself anyway. <laughs> um, 
but I do, I do like the idea of uh, of returning to characters intermittently and just seeing them from a slightly different angle. And this is Tolstoy is the master of doing this. If you're in War and Peace, you you go off to war for a few years, and when you come back, you find that the girls at home have grown up, and you now see them from quite a different angle, and often not not a very kind one. He's rather he's very unforgiving the way when he returns and shows you a different facet of his characters. It's really quite cruel sometimes, I think. But it's, uh, I prefer myself, if going back to a character, to show them in a slightly better light on revisiting and say, well, look, they may appear like this, but there's usually a reason why people are the way they are. Well, there's usually tons of reasons, but, you know, here's one or two of them. So the reason Lena ends up in Vienna is because she becomes involved with Rudolf, a young lawyer who is also heavily involved in the political scene, sort of rather labyrinthine political scene of Vienna, something that, well, we know as a reader in the future is a doomed enterprise fundamentally. Tell us something about you know what would have been going on politically in Vienna in these interwar years. Well, after the, under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, the Austria-Hungary, Austria, as it then becomes, suffers financially in the same way that Germany does. And this leads to a sort of polarisation in politics, I suppose you would say. Snow Country is not immensely concerned with the political, the politics of Austria, but it keeps it very simple. I mean, and in simple terms, what really happened was that the, the left wing of the country was focused on Vienna, which was a very developed socialist city, actually, with, you know, really huge amount of municipal housing, housing estates, projects for the workers, slums were cleared. These places had, you know, really excellent facilities and laundries and creches and so on. Uh, and high taxes, of course, in Vienna to pay for this. And the rest of Austria, which was very, very conservative, very Catholic. And so that that was the essential um, opposition between the two. But each side had its private army. uh, And then the government banned the private army of the left. And this precipitated showdowns ending in extreme violence in 1934, when the government actually used the army used not just soldiers, but artillery, heavy artillery, to open fire on a sort of workers' protests and workers' occupation. As I say, we don't go into a great deal of detail about this. There's one kind of scene of action towards the end of the book. But really, the point is to get, to get us into the mind of Rudolf, who's the other main character, who is a lawyer, who is an activist, and a believer. he's a sort of idealist. And he believes he's a, a man of the left, he's a socialist, but he also has a religious belief. Uh, and he believes that the the idea of socialism and religion can go hand in hand, which puts him at odds with the the rest of the left wing in Vienna uh, who are atheist. So that's a way of looking at these ideas. But it's really it's his relation with Lena that's the the dynamo as far as he's concerned as a character, and his relationship with her is well, it's complicated. Does he love her? Does he fancy her? Does he want to be with her? What does she feel for him? It's not always completely clear, is it? No, indeed. At the end of the book, there's there's an afterword where you mention the influence of another book called Snow Country by the uh, the Nobel Prize winning Japanese novelist Kawabata. And I wonder in what way was that novel an influence on this one? The basic uh, way was I just pinched his title, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, which is a title I liked very much. And it wasn't really called Snow Country when Kawabata wrote it. He called it Yukiguni. And Snow Country was the uh, was an English name given to it in the 50s. 
and uh, Kawabata died a long time ago. So my hope was that um, in 1972, in fact, my hope was that he had no further use for this title. But I, I do pay a homage to him in one passage in the book, uh, which describes Lena arriving one night under heavy snow at the local station before where she is to take up her new job as a maid at this sanatorium. So that's a sort of politeness, really, to a great writer who went before. But it was also, it's just such a beautiful scene in his book that I wanted to take my hat off to him, really. Just one more thing then, and then I'll get you to read us a bit of the book, if you would. Um, Are we going to wait another 15 years for the (laughs) third one? (laughs) Uh, I don't think I can risk waiting another 15 years. I sort of know what's going to be in it. Uh, funnily enough, it's rather crystallised in my mind in the last few weeks as I've been touring around talking about Snow Country. I think I now see what is left to say, and I think I now see vaguely how to say it. So my plan is to write another book first, um, which will be a very contemporary, rather high-concept novel set in modern-day or even slightly future England. Uh, And then I'll go and then the next one I'll do will be the third and final part of the Austrian trilogy. God willing, if we're all if we're all spared. Indeed, indeed. Um, Can I get you to read us a bit then? Yes, this is a little bit which it's very hard reading from novels, really, because you have to spend so much time explaining where you are that you've hardly any time left to read. But this is a bit about two thirds of the way through the book when Anton has gone to the sanatorium to write an article about it. And he has stayed on there because he wants to receive psychotherapy himself. And he realises that he's going to need, having booked in only for a few days, he's going to need some more shirts and more clothes to wear. He's going to stay there for another month or so. So he goes off to the local town and Lena finds herself accompanying him. And this is a little scene where we see perhaps something of each of those two. Until that instant in the draper's shop, Lena's life had been little more than a war with need, keeping herself alive while relying on the whim of others. Those others who, since the days of Lucas and Emma at school, she had distrusted. And more than distrusted, because she had had the childish but persistent suspicion that other people were not real in the inescapable way that she was, that their battles to survive were not as pressing as her own. As a result, her innate compassion had had no outlet any more than her affection. It had instead built up inside her for almost a quarter of a century. But now, hearing Anton's voice from the other room, polite yet weary, disengaged from what he was doing, she felt the swelling of an unstoppable emotion. Rising from her chair, she went into the back room where the assistant was wrapping Anton's purchases. So that's all done, the man was saying. For the last shirt, if you could choose between these two, the thin stripe is more classic, but the cream you can wear with anything. Anton was fingering the material on the countertop, but Lena could tell that he was not interested. I think you should have this one, she said, pulling a blue shirt off the rail. He looked her deep in the eye as she stood with her arm outstretched. Was there a glint of recognition, she wondered, or was he merely surprised by her decisive movement? Uh, Do you have this in my size? He said, I I like the colour. It would suit you, said Lena. Let me see. Yeah, yes, we do have it in your size. It's a very good quality cotton, a little more expensive than the others. Oh, that's all right. I'll I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Lena. Uh, I'm not very gifted when it comes to shopping, as you can probably see. That shade of blue, said Lena, 
it was easy to choose. So I've been talking to Sebastian folks. We've been talking about his new novel, Snow Country, which is out in the UK from Hutchinson Heinemann. Sebastian, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.